Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Voles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to Building Insight. My name is Catherine Thornton. And I'm Jackie Van Leeuwen. And we are here to talk about some recent developments in the case called Blake and Blake. So Jackie and I did a podcast on Blake and Blake previously in November of 2019. And in that podcast, you can listen to some more in-depth details on the facts of the case. Today, we're really here to discuss some recent appeal developments. The case has important implications with respect to a lawyer's duty to the court. Yeah, exactly. And even though it's an estates case, I think it's really important for all lawyers, especially litigators, in every area of practice, because, of course, the duty to the court is so important. Absolutely, Catherine, agreed. And now we have the Advocate Society becoming involved. We have Law Pro becoming involved. So I think certainly the case has wide-ranging implications that lawyers should be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll just give a brief overview of the facts without getting into too much detail. Again, I did write an article on this case and Jackie and I did a podcast when the case first came out. So essentially what happened here is the respondent to an estates matter brought a summary judgment motion to dismiss the other side's application. And one issue in that summary judgment motion was a limitations issue. The respondent was basically saying that the application was out of time. And there was this case out there that disposed of the respondent's limitations argument. Well, the judge said it was directly on point, but nobody brought it to the judge's attention. The judge himself actually found the case, he said, without any ingenious or in-depth research. Those are his words, not mine, which is obviously not ideal. So neither lawyer brought this golden case to the judge. The judge was writing his decision and found this case on his own. Now, the kicker in all of this is the respondent's lawyer's law firm actually wrote a detailed blog post about this golden case. And the judge concluded that the respondent's lawyer purposefully did not bring the case to his attention. So that's quite quite an implication, Catherine, if just having a blog article that was written by someone else at your firm about a case that you then did not bring to the court's attention If a judge can draw an inference based on that, that's a lesson in and of itself, certainly to do your research, but also to be aware of the material that your firm is publishing. Yeah, exactly, Jackie. So at a minimum, I think lawyers should be reading what their firm is producing. It's certainly an interesting issue. This raises a question for law firms that have 200, 300 plus lawyers. Are they responsible for reading everything that their firm publishes, everything that their practice group publishes? Of course, if it's a golden case, that's something that we as lawyers should be aware of. I just wonder what the implications would be if maybe the case wasn't quite so cut and dry as it was in this case. 
That's a good point, Jackie. I think what we might need in the future then is another case to kind of test these boundaries. Right now, we just have most recently Blake and Blake on this point. And we will also need to hear what the divisional court says. So what came of this is a pretty big cost award against that lawyer's client on a substantial indemnity basis for about $90,000. The other thing I should mention is that Justice Daly, the judge hearing this decision, was quite critical of counsel for failing to bring this golden case to the court both during the motion and also while the decision was under reserve. Before we jump into the appeal though, I should talk about Justice Daly's guidance to lawyers on this issue. So Justice Daly identified two principles related to our obligation to inform the court of relevant authorities. So the first one is when a lawyer knows about a relevant authority, failing to bring it to the court's attention could be seen as an attempt to mislead the court. And the second point here is when a lawyer doesn't know about an authority, ignorance may not be enough because as lawyers, we have to do research. Justice Daly also went into some factors relevant to counsel's duty to the court. And these factors, I think, really give us the most guidance on the issue. He says that binding cases must be raised if they're relevant. Second, he says that non-binding but persuasive cases don't necessarily need to be raised, but counsel should raise them if it's on point and from the same jurisdiction. Third, he said that when a lawyer says that they didn't know about an authority to determine whether they should have known about the case, the court can ask whether the case was easy to find, and if the case was in a specialized area of law, like estates, for example, it's less likely that the court will impute knowledge of the case on the lawyer. And the fourth part of this, Jackie, is that lawyers cannot decide on their own whether a case is distinguishable. So if the case is relevant, the lawyer has to bring it to the court's attention, and then the judge can distinguish it if they see fit. So, Catherine, as I understand that, the point isn't that you just bring every case to the judge's attention. It's still the lawyer's job to bring the relevant and binding cases, especially from the same jurisdiction, to the judge's attention, distinguish them if, if possible and relevant to your case, and then the judge can determine whether or not they agree. Yeah, Jackie, I think that's fair. So, if it's relevant, you have to bring it to the court's attention and then it's our job as lawyers to distinguish and argue that something does apply or doesn't apply and then the judge can decide if it is indeed distinguishable or not the point is that the judge ultimately gets to decide yeah exactly exactly which makes sense of course because they're the ones deciding the issue but we cannot, as lawyers, sit around at the boardroom and say, we don't need this case because it's distinguishable. If it's relevant, we have to bring it and we have to distinguish it. Right. Justice Daly's decision came out in July of 2019 and leave to appeal was granted in December of 2019. In January of 2020, the two parties, Blake and Blake, settled their dispute. So Blake and Blake are not actually involved in the appeal. 
So Jackie, given that both Blake and Blake have settled the more substantive matter between them, is the appeal now moot? Yes, Catherine. So the appeal was moot because the parties no longer had an interest in the litigation or they no longer wanted to litigate the costs of the appeal. However, the court granted the lawyer's motion on the basis that the court will adjudicate an otherwise moot appeal if certain factors are established. In this case, the court noted that there were matters of general importance at issue, i.e. a lawyer's duty to the court. The lawyer was granted leave to intervene as a party to the appeal on three issues only. One, are the findings of the motion judge about the professional conduct of the proposed intervener proper and supported by the evidence? Two, what is the extent of a lawyer's duty to the court, including when a matter has been argued and remains under reserve? And three, should there be cost consequences for a client if his or her lawyer has breached his or her duty to the court? Now, I think those three, especially the second two, really cut to the crux of the issue. Yeah, I agree with you, Jackie. So really, what is the lawyer's duty to the court? How big does it span? What do we need to do? What do we need to refrain from doing? And if we breach that duty to the court, what happens? Can our clients be forced to pay pretty whopping cost awards as it stands right now with just Justice Daly's decision out there and no word from the divisional court yet? It seems like yes, but we need to wait for the divisional court's word on it. Yeah, I think that's right, Catherine. And the other question is, what about when a decision is under reserve? Do you still have a duty to bring cases to the court's attention if you then come across that case? Is your client expected to incur costs for you to conduct further legal research while a decision is under reserve? There's a lot of questions that need to be clarified here. I think the other question here, Catherine, is what about opposing counsel's duty to the court? They also didn't bring the case to the court's attention. However, their client is not suffering cost consequences. Yeah, that's a good point, Jackie. I think the reason being is that their client was successful on the summary judgment motion. So I think that's the operative piece here. But you're right. If not bringing the golden case when you're on for the respondent is a breach, then perhaps it is for the other side too. So to make matters more exciting, Jackie, there is a second intervener. It is the Advocate Society. They were granted leave to intervene on April 21st, 2021, so quite recently. And they are intervening on the same issues as counsel for Blake. That's right, Catherine. However, leave was granted to the Advocate Society on the basis that the perspective the Advocate Society would bring is broader and more general than the lawyers. In addition, the court determined that the Advocate Society's intervention would not unduly expand the issues or cause any injustice to the parties. So the Advocate Society is intervening on the same issues that counsel for the respondent, Blake, is intervening for, but they're really focusing on the second issue, which is the extent of the lawyer's duty to the court, including when the matter has been argued and remains under reserve with the judge. Yes, that's right, Catherine. So the Advocate Society, when they decide whether to apply for leave to intervene in a case, they consider several factors. 
one of which is the importance of the case to the profession and to the public. So I think this is a clear case of importance to the profession. The Advocate Society is intending to assist the court in this matter by providing submissions on the following issues. The scope of an advocate's duty to bring case law before the court, the standard for assessing whether an advocate has breached this duty, and the proper procedure for finding an advocate has breached their duty to the court and for imposing cost consequences on the advocate's client as a result. So all areas that certainly would benefit from some clarification. The Advocate Society does a really good job of pointing out a tension between two of our duties. One is the duty to our client. So we are obviously advocates. We have a duty to advocate for our client zealously, to advance every argument, even the distasteful ones, and of course to fight for our client. And then on the other hand, we have this duty to the court. We are officers of the court. We have to bring relevant authorities to the court, even ones that we think are distinguishable, for example. So the Advocate Society is really pointing out that we can articulate these duties, but applying them is sometimes difficult. Yeah, that's right, Catherine. And the Advocate Society actually published a useful article, which is fittingly titled A Lawyer's Duty to the Court in 2009. And that article was cited in the costs endorsement in the Blake and Blake case. I thought there was a, an interesting uh, quote from that article, which is also included in the Advocate Society factum. So it just states that the duty to the court should not be misconstrued as requiring the lawyer to present a disinterested account of the law. In fact, lawyers are obliged to distinguish those authorities which do not support their client's position. So that kind of goes back to what we were what we were saying before. So I think the takeaway here is you must disclose all of the authorities that are binding to your case but you also must distinguish those that can be distinguished that are potentially harmful to your client's case. Yeah, I think that's right, Jackie. So every case that is relevant needs to be brought, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then it's really our job to distinguish and advocate. So Jackie, what is the Advocate Society arguing for that is not already in Justice Daly's decision? Well, the main thing is notice. So one of the Advocate Society's main submissions is that if the court is considering making a finding that a lawyer breached their duty to the court or the rules of professional conduct, there must be clear notice to the lawyer and their client. Now that goes back to, of course, the cost consequences for the client and also the potential reputational consequences for the lawyer. The Advocate Society wants lawyers to have an opportunity to advise their client of the potential implications to them, and also to give both parties, the lawyer and their client, the opportunity to make submissions. The Advocate Society wants this to apply whether cost consequences may fall on the lawyer personally, their client, both or neither. Okay, so Jackie, am I correct to say that if there's a finding of a breach of the lawyer's duty to the court, the Advocate Society wants a separate opportunity for the lawyer and the client to address those allegations, no matter what the cost consequences are or are not. 
Exactly, Catherine. And no matter who may suffer the cost consequences. I think what it comes down to, Catherine, is every lawyer is exercising their own professional judgment when determining what cases to bring before the court, what cases not to bring, what cases to distinguish, etc. And I think it's worth noting, too, that these professional judgments about the applicability of cases are not always straightforward. One lawyer may think a case is binding, another lawyer may think not so much. Uh, so it's really just all these different exercises and decisions that lawyers are making all the time. And the question is, how how is the court then going to judge whether or not a lawyer breached their duty to the court? Yeah, that's a good question, Jackie. So the Advocate Society is arguing for the standard of reasonableness to apply with a modified objective test. It does seem like that approach would take into account the lawyer's judgment, and also the actual situation before him or her. That sounds like a reasonable standard, Catherine. There's still an element of subjectivity, which takes into account the fact that lawyers, at least for now, are still people and not AI. Yeah, exactly, Jackie. We'll have to see what the divisional court does with it. You mentioned earlier that the appeal was actually heard in June of this year, 2021. So hopefully we will get a decision soon. And when we do, we will update our listeners. So stay tuned for part three. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.